This is Marking the Role, a podcast for teachers and educators generally, uh, and increasingly for parents and even some students. My name's Phil Dye. I'm your host. I'm an ex-teacher and I have an avid interest in education. We're based in the Illawarra area of Australia, which is on the east coast, south of Sydney. Um, And this is not one of our scheduled episodes. This is a bonus episode to look at two issues which have had more light shone on them in the last couple of weeks or uh, that have really uh, galvanised public attention in a way that we certainly didn't expect. As a matter of fact, we've had so much response that we're calling this episode 2022 one of the darkest years in Australian education and medicine. Because yes, there is a crossover between the two. Now, the first issue that we're talking about will be that the Parliament of Australia have commissioned to set an inquiry into school behaviour, behaviour of students. Now, that's a biggie. It affects teachers everywhere. The second is um, some more information Uh, and an update on our episode 20, which was gender dysphoria, the most listened to episode um, in the whole year, um, with a little bit more information uh, and commentary on that. Now, you might think there's not much connection between teachers needing to have a stable classroom in order to educate students and the medical topic of gender dysphoria, but there is a link because there is an increasing number of students in Australian schools Uh, transitioning their gender. Now this, assisted by parents and often the medical establishment, um, has an impact on other students in a class. It's a big change for other students as well as the student themselves. And this year is the first time that teachers have had to deal with this phenomenon um, to, to this extent. As a matter of fact, as I said in episode 20, 50% of uh, the students at a school in Sydney are gender transitioning. First, I want to let teachers know who are listening that um, the Parliament of Australia have, have put forward that there's going to be a Senate committee to investigate the effects of disorderly classrooms on student learning and on teachers. So it's going to be, um, it's bipartisan, so it's supported by both the Liberal and the Labor Party. And as you probably know, Australian classrooms rank among the world's most disorderly and poorly disciplined. Um, so this Senate inquiry will will look at why that is. Now, there's a lot of teachers listening who would just be nodding their heads and saying, I know why it is. It's because our behaviour policies um, are completely awful and we had no say into those policies. Matter of fact, people who wrote the policies have never taught in a classroom. So that uh, Senate um, investigation will look at the impact of classroom disruption on students' learning, 
because we are one of the worst in the world and I think the only countries that are worse than us is, is Argentina, uh, the Philippines and Brazil. I mean, they're, they're the ones who are worse than us. Um, of course, the best is South Korea. I have been pushed, slapped and deliberately coughed on during COVID. I have seen newly appointed teachers straight out of university who have been placed in the classroom who, within the first year, have gone off on, on stress leave um, just because you know they couldn't handle the, the workload, the expectations that were put on there, the scrutiny from the parents. Once upon a time, when I was going to primary school, if I got into trouble at school, I'd get into trouble at home. Well, these days, it's exactly the opposite. For the student in question telling a teacher to go F themselves and flatly refusing simple instructions was considered very minor. That was the voices of two teachers and a retired primary school principal. Also, in the terms of reference, is um, the impact on teachers of this. Now, we've been looking at this in the podcast for the last 12 months, that teachers are very badly affected by this lack of student behaviour. And the steps that a teacher can take to make a student accountable has become very limited. It seems that nothing is viewed as wrong or right these days. They're just expressing themselves. And now, while that might be true some of the time, most of the time, it's a lot of rubbish. And the students have simply got to learn that we all have to abide by rules in society. And if you can't abide by the rules of um, speaking without swearing to a teacher, without throwing chairs, and well, that is a major problem. And there has to be ways of holding a student to account and letting them know what is accepted in society and what's not acceptable. Because at the moment, what's not acceptable is ruling the roost and creating one of the darkest years ever in Australian education. Now, everyone can put in a submission um, to this um, Senate report. Um, teachers can, even students can, parents can, and not just parents of those who may be smaller groups within the education community. I know that there'll be parents from the disabled community putting in submissions, but what is needed um, are submissions from parents who don't fall into the disability community, because it is true that 40% of all of the behaviour problems in Australian schools are coming from students with a disability. Now, that doesn't mean that there shouldn't be students with a disability in a mainstream class. Most disabled students are fine. But there are some who, uh, because of their disability, create massive behaviour issues. Teachers know that. Um, the students know that. The students aren't silly. Um, and it's time for perhaps some of those parents to get into reality that their child is not suitable to a mainstream class. Um, and the people who write our behaviour policies and our inclusion policies to also get a small dose of reality. So the submission date is the 31st of March 2023. You can make submissions up until that. We'll make sure that there is a link for submissions on the Marking the Roll website um, and make that very obvious to you um, so that you can make a submission 
about this because no doubt there'll be lots of um, individuals and groups who are favouring the current behaviour policies, especially those individuals and groups who come from a so-called progressive perspective. But um, of course, we need other voices in that mix as well. You're listening to Marking the Role, a podcast for teachers and anyone interested in education. You can keep the podcast going by becoming a member or making a small donation through Buy Us a Coffee. Just go to markingtherole.com.au and click on the yellow coffee cup. Thanks for listening. Now to the second part of this bonus or postscript episode. And we're going to be looking at uh, the gender dysphoria um, episode and adding a little bit extra. This little section, uh, I want to clarify our position on gender transitioning. I thought we'd made it clear, but uh, for some people we hadn't. Look at some of the feedback that we've received on this issue because teachers um, are pretty concerned about it. Uh, And look at some of the new information that's come to light in the last few weeks and what can be done about this issue. Now, first of all, to clarify our position, we're not transphobic. If someone wants to, to transition and they're over the age of 18 or realistically they should be over the age of 25, that's when the brain Um, decision-making part of the brain is fully developed. But, you know, with our legal system, yes, over the age of 18 is fine. Um, If they want to do that, good on them, and they can go ahead and do that. We have no objection. Um, I've met two transgender people in my life, and they were lovely people. But they didn't begin the transition phase until well after uh, 18 years of age. Um, Our position is that um, minors, anyone under the age of 18, should not be given any uh, transitioning uh, hormones, any uh, puberty blockers, any surgery at all. And all of that should begin after the age of 18 if the person still wants to transition. This gender-affirming philosophy uh, for school students, for people under the age of 18, for those even who are 10 and 12 years old. Um, I'm afraid to affirm what a 12, 13, 14-year-old says as being uh, definite and being true for them and being absolute in their life is going too far. To be honest, I don't know whether I knew what I was doing in my life till you know well over 20. Certainly in my teens, it was a little bit chaotic. It's especially chaotic if you've had a traumatic childhood and 70% of those who are transitioning or have transitioned or desire to uh, have come from childhood trauma backgrounds. Matter of fact, they have three or more uh, instances of childhood trauma on their ACE trauma score. So with that in mind, we disagree with any transition under the age of 18. And what's happening is that gender-affirming specialists all over Australia are not looking at the past childhood trauma. They're not looking at trying to heal that. They are simply jumping on the gender transition answer. And the Royal Melbourne Children's Hospital Gender Clinic, under the guidance of Professor Associate Professor Michelle Telfer, uh, are world leaders in the field of transitioning for 
under-18s, and they fully understand that the child has had immense trauma in their life. Here are her words. The young people we see experience distress in all aspects of their life, many different domains, at home, at school, extended family, so forth. For those who aren't well supported or have had severe problems with bullying or other issues, we see really marked distress. We see high rates of depression and anxiety. And we also see rates of self-harm at about 50% of adolescents who aren't well supported. And 30% of adolescents attempt suicide at some stage in adolescence when they're not well supported. So the consequences are, uh, are really severe. Okay, so the gender specialists understand this all too well. And these kids have had trauma all the way through their lives. And suddenly there's this answer of gender transitioning. Um, I'd ask why this trauma isn't investigated. Often the trauma is ongoing. The depression is not going to stop. Their anxiety is not going to stop. The abuse that they may still be suffering at home is not going to stop and the uh, past history is not going to be addressed. And while Michelle Telfer and her team pride themselves on being multidisciplinary, another multidisciplinary team at Westmead Children's Hospital, and this is also from their gender service with the lead author Cassia Kozlowska, found that yes, what Michelle Telfer was saying is correct, but there was also post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, personality disorders and psychosis, and elevated rates of autism diagnosed. And that Westmead study also found that with all of this happening in the kids' lives, or that had happened, few of the families rated themselves as being in a clinically severe range on self-report. So, in other words, the families thought that all this was normal. Um, I'm afraid it's not. And here's another quote from the Westmead Gender Service. Children's conceptions of themselves are still developing through the teenage years, and that they can be harmed when clinicians unquestioningly accept the individual child's assertion of gender identity. And yet another. Individuals with gender dysphoria need access to psychological support from impartial practitioners who do not subscribe to gender identity ideology and are able to help people explore their thoughts and feelings about their sex, sex, sexuality, and the underlying cause of their gender dysphoria. So yes, these kids come from immensely traumatic backgrounds, uh, but it seems this study, the Westmead study, is being overlooked. It reminds me that, uh, as I said in previous episodes, when I pulled all my hair out when I was 14 as a result of my childhood trauma, the doctor then, when my mother took me to the doctor because I was virtually bald, the doctor gave me cream to rub on my head. The doctor didn't look at the cause of the trauma. 
that was causing me to pull all of my hair out one by one. Indeed, I didn't tell the doctor nor my mother that I was pulling my hair out one by one because I was so scared as to what would happen to me if my mother found out. And as a child of 14, I didn't link my childhood trauma with pulling my hair out. Indeed, I thought every household was like this. You would hope in 2022 medical practitioners would be far more sophisticated and look to deeper causes rather than just prescribing cream. Gender transitioning is the equivalent of the doctor giving me cream to rub on my head. All of the causes of the trauma continued. I didn't stop, continued well into my teens, late teens, until my mother died. Now, also in uh, Victoria, there's a, a website um, called Minus 18. Now, it, it, it really does fight discrimination, and that's great stuff. Um, uh, but it's really aimed at the under-18s. Um, and look, all of the the colours in the rainbow flag, it's fine to be giving education about that. But when it comes to the T letter in the rainbow flag, um, for under-18s involving puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones and surgery, um, we draw the line at that. But it's not overly promotion, promotional of that. But one thing from their website got me. Uh, it says, through a preventative model of mental health support, we tackle social isolation by creating fun-filled spaces where LGBTQIA plus young people belong and are celebrated. Now, I'm sorry, but just being gender diverse doesn't mean you're celebrated. Just being male doesn't mean I'm celebrated. Oh, the matter of fact, most LGBTQIA people that I know uh, simply want to be included. They don't want to be celebrated. Uh, and it concerns me that um, kids under the age of 18 who are dying for some attention, maybe they're not getting it at home. Um, they're not getting love at home, but suddenly they find a place where they'll be celebrated. Now, um, this is a worry because um, they may not have, have any idea about gender transitioning, but they've finally found a place that's fun-filled uh, and they'll be celebrated. I don't think being a part of the rainbow flag is necessarily um, to be celebrated. It's just normal. It's just being included. <laughs> Now, if you're going to celebrate your sexual diversity on the Minus 18 site, um, all the other parts of the rainbow flag, that's okay. It doesn't involve puberty blockers, uh, cross-sex hormones and surgery. They don't involve that. It's only the T part of the rainbow flag that involves that. And this is the big worry. Doesn't matter if you're over 18, but it matters a lot if you're in your very formative years and you've got vulnerable young people that are being urged to do something which they may well and probably will regret later on in their life. 
You're listening to Marking the Roll, a podcast for teachers and anyone interested in education. We discuss the real issues facing educators without fear or favour. Please follow us on Facebook, subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends. For more info, go to markingtheroll.com.au. Another thing that I wanted to mention is the uh, feedback that we've received from uh, our episode 20 and the last part of our episode 21. Look, the feedback has been terrific. Uh, And I mentioned in episode 21, I'd had one negative comment. I've now had two negative comments, one from the UK, one from Australia. But most of the comments are overwhelmingly positive and supportive. And most of them come from the LGBTQI community. Um, To say that everyone under that rainbow flag has to agree with everyone else is rubbish. There are people in the T community, the trans community, who wish they hadn't have transgendered and who don't support the transgender um, approach for people under the age of 18. They don't support promotion of uh, gender transitioning um, to the under 18s. Plenty of them by the look of the feedback that we received. So thanks so much for um, that feedback. And here's just one message that I received. Hello, my name's Angela, um, and I just listened to your episode on just gender dysphoria in Australian schools. And I just wanted to pass on my um, appreciation. Thank you so much. It's a very, very important episode, and I'm going to be sharing it um, widely. Thank you. Now, the feedback we got from teachers was uh, more showing frustration than anything else. Uh, Teachers have said that they, through their mandatory reporting, if they felt that uh, a a student was going through gender dysphoria, but they're also experiencing ongoing abuse. Now, I'm not saying that every child who's declaring themselves as gender dysphoric um, is going through abuse, but there would be some. And teachers... Uh, worried about this they go to the principal the principal then reports to the child child justice department and child protection Um, but they are so overrun that nothing happens and this is very frustrating for teachers that they see that this poor student who is obviously depressed they're anxious they're going through lots of drama and their childhood trauma is possibly ongoing and they've reported it the principals reported it but nothing has happened this is made even more frustrating when uh, on the 6th of december there was a tweet now deleted from uh, georgina harrison the department of education secretary um, in new south wales um, stating that 24.7 million dollars had been spent on um a digital platform so that all students would have access to everything that they've done at school digitally. Now, that 24.7 is fine, Georgina, but uh, when there is not enough staff in the Department of Justice, Children's Justice and Child Protection to ensure that the students uh, that are being taught under the Department of Education banner are safe, uh, then I think that 24.7 million could have been spent in uh, a better way. (music) 
That's very frustrating for teachers. I heard of a case of a school today where um, a boy um, who, according to uh, the principal, was playing soccer and, he, and he's running around with his mates, but uh, the mum has come and said that he is transitioning to a girl. And the principal saw no evidence of that. He's running around enjoying you know, normal play with, with his friends. Now, this is very frustrating for teachers, you know, when they see that this poor kid is being in some way influenced. Of course, there's teachers who should not be teachers. There's doctors who should not be doctors. But there's also parents who should not be parents. So um, teachers are very frustrated in what they are seeing in regards to this whole issue of gender dysphoria. This frustration is made worse when there is research coming out all the time, like the one that just came out um, only about a month ago uh, from Professor of Medicine Mark B. Garnick from Harvard University, who said this. Woefully little safety data are available for the likely more vulnerable younger population given these drugs as puberty blockers. The prudent and ethical use of such hormone suppression agents in the younger population should demand that every pubertal or pre-pubertal child be part of rigorous clinical research studies. These studies should evaluate both the short-term and longer-term effects of these agents to better define the true risks and benefits rather than relying on anecdotal information. So there is lots of research coming out that's saying, hey, yes, it might have been done on sheep, but we're now looking that there is so little studies done with humans that we should stop the whole process. Now, if I can find this research, then surely the medical community can find the research. Surely the politicians can find the research. Um, it's not hard to find. And of course, what we never hear about uh, in our news is the number of people who are trying to de-transition, those who have been through it all, but they find that uh, this has not solved their problem. And they're trying to now de-transition back to what they were originally born as. Here's Chloe. I was only 12 years old when I told my parents that I was a boy. Like many parents in that situation, they didn't have a clue what to do. They were scared and desperate for answers. They wanted what every parent wants for their child, for me to be okay and thrive. At 13 years old, on the advice of so-called medical professionals, I was put on puberty-blocking medication, and only a month later, I was given my first testosterone injection. The gender clinic presented my parents with the, with the classic false dichotomy regarding children with gender dysphoria. Would you rather have a dead daughter or a living son? Given these options, what loving parent wouldn't choose to transition their child? Scared for my life, my parents were prepared to sign anything the doctors asked. This was not, that, this was not informed consent. It was a decision forced under extreme duress. At 15, I went under the knife for a radical double mastectomy, the kind that breast cancer patients get. This was after I was sexually assaulted at school by a male student. I was afraid and I couldn't wait to finally protect my body from the threat of further molestation. At 16, 
I finally realized what happened to me, that I had made a huge mistake. I realized the beauty of motherhood was stolen from me by medical professionals who my family entrusted me to. I realized after maturing a bit more that a child does not in fact know who they are at 12 years old. I realized that I wanted to be what I always was and forever will be, a woman. My parents were shocked and felt like they failed me on every level imaginable. Even the medical professionals who got me into this mess now have no idea what to do with me and they refuse to help me. It almost killed me, as it has killed many who regret transition. All children deserve better. And that was from Chloe from the USA, um, where it is a lot worse than it is here. I think the the medical staff, the parents, uh, the the education bureaucracy, who obviously aren't asking the right questions, their heart's probably in the right place, and they believe very much in what they're doing. However, when our health system, our education system, our university system, and our media get hijacked by progressive extremists and the spokespeople for those groups, then we know that there is a problem. And an overwhelming majority of Australians, if put to the vote, would not support gender transitioning for under-18s. So, what can be done about all this? Well, perhaps one of the first um, steps would be for other parts of the rainbow flag to have a chat to the transition community and say, yes, look, we're all very happy to be in this rainbow flag, but I think there's one part of the transition story uh, that is more a nightmare than a fairy tale. Um, This idea of transitioning for children while they're at school and under the age of 18. They can't drink, they can't go and gamble, they can't get a tattoo, but they can go and change their gender. There seems something very wrong with that. And other uh, parts of the rainbow flag can certainly uh, have a influence in this. What else can, can be done is that the media can play uh, a more balanced part. Uh, I personally call on the ABC to have a uh, article on gender detransitioning. They're all very, very fine at this uh, gender-affirming angle, but the idea of gender detransitioning is seems something they're not going to touch. And by the way, who profits most from puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, and all of the treatment uh, from the operations needed? For example, double mastectomy. I wonder. The scientific research purporting to justify current medical treatment is often funded by the very drug companies that profit from it. Delamay van der Waal and Cohen Tennis are the originators of the Dutch protocol on which current gender dysphoria practices are based. As they acknowledge in that seminal paper, the authors are very grateful to Ferring Pharmaceuticals for the financial support of studies on the treatment of adolescents with gender identity disorders. Well, of course, they're grateful to Ferring Pharmaceuticals because they make the money from the puberty blockers, from the cross-sex hormones and medications uh, needed as a result of surgery.
For far too long, medical research has been funded by the very pharmaceutical companies that stand to make the most money from that research indicating certain things. And gender transitioning, especially for the under-18s, is no exception. And finally, perhaps our premiers, our health ministers, our education ministers in states around Australia should have a read of the research themselves. They can't rely on their lackeys just to give them information because a lot of our departments are driven by uh, progressive extremists. Now, it's fine to be progressive, but there is extreme progression and it seems that there is a lot of that in Australian bureaucracies. I know there's a lot in departments of education around the country. If we are going to avoid one of the darkest times in Australian medical history, and because of the crossover, a dark time in Australian education history, then we have to stop this promotion of gender transition to the under-18s and school-age kids. We've had many dark days in medical history. One of the darkest in Australia was with uh, thalidomide, a drug that was given to pregnant women to stop their nausea. Um, Worldwide, it resulted in the birth of 10,000 babies who were extremely um, disabled, uh, born with no arms and legs. And an Australian doctor, William McBride, Uh, discovered that this was being caused by the drug thalidomide, which was being widely prescribed here in Australia. A disaster. Another disaster from around about the same time, 1940s and 1950s, was when doctors prescribed smoking to women, mainly women, um, in order to avoid depression and to help weight loss. Now, this was influenced by tobacco companies, mainly in America, but it certainly reached here. My mother was prescribed 20 cigarettes a day when I was five years old to combat depression. A couple of years later, um, I remember being in the doctor's surgery at the time, and the doctor upped it to 40 cigarettes a day until a few years later it went up to 60. Of course, um, she got emphysema. Um, But that's what the doctors were doing. That's what they thought was best practice. Again, um, A little bit later on, they stopped the lobotomy program, which was where a Dr. Freeman um, would do lobotomies. Now, a lobotomy was a... um, He used an ice pick, actually, to go through the eye uh, in order to carve out parts of the brain which were causing mental illness. Uh, He did this with children. He did it with adults. He did it with the sister of the then President of the United States, John F. Kennedy. The poor woman then could not eat, talk, or walk and lived out the rest of her life in various asylums. So there has been many medical disasters in the past 100 years, and it's highly likely that the transition, the gender transitioning of young people, under 18s, school-aged children, within the next 20 years will be one of them. And we'll be looking back at this time as one of the darkest periods in Australian medical history. The USA is far more advanced than we are, but we only have to wait probably another three years till we see the avalanche of 
detransitioners, those who are sorry for what they've done, they don't feel comfortable, it hasn't fixed their trauma, um, and they're trying to go back to the way they were born. I'm going to um, let a detransitioner, Kat Cattinson from the USA, just round up this episode. My name's Phil Dye. You've been listening to Marking the Roll, a special bonus episode. I'll see you sometime in 2023. Some very loud voices, uh, you know, trans activists within the community are really speaking for people who are not trans identified and trying to basically construct the narrative about all of society based on like the small minority group. And I think that's really dangerous for, you know, young impressional people 